Welcome back to another episode of International Immersion, a podcast that seeks to capture the combined experiences of people, places, culture, traveling, current events, living abroad, and much, much more. So for today's episode, in respect of Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage, or API, this month, we thought it'd be a great idea to talk with some people from different backgrounds and go into depth and discuss a number of questions that impact how they feel, think, and in a way affects their identity. So for today's episode, I have five guests, all of which are from different backgrounds, all distinguished, have accomplished a lot, and have some very interesting stories to themselves. So to begin with everyone, I'm glad you're all here today. It's great to, uh, great to have this event, and I'm really eager to hear about a lot of things you have to offer, your backgrounds, your experiences, and everything else. So uh, without further ado, it'd be great to introduce all of you to our audience. So uh, Amy, it'd be great. If you want to go ahead and start. Hi, Sean. Thank you for having us. Uh, this is Amy Lee here. I am the author of Snow in Vietnam, and I'm originally from Vietnam. I now live in Oklahoma City. And, um, you know, I, uh, my background is just, is really about um, trying to navigate uh, what life is like here in the U.S. as a Vietnamese refugee who actually came here with a congenital heart defect. So that's kind of me in a, in a nutshell. Um, do I just go next? <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, so hi, my name is Angela. I'm originally from the Philippines, and I'm currently based in Manila. Uh, but I was born and raised in Indonesia, so I would classify myself as a third culture kid. Um, I grew up with a very sort of Western upbringing, a uh, very Western culture, uh, but I'm still very close to my roots as a Filipino. Uh, since being born and raised in Indonesia, I've lived in the UK, in Singapore, and in France as well. So I've been very fortunate to be able to see how many different cultures go about their day-to-day -day lives. And um, I find this topic very interesting. So thank you for having me on. Hi, Sean. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, my name is Callum Marshall. I'm half Japanese, born and raised in London, UK, and have been living in Japan for almost two years, almost two years now. Probably for another two years. Yeah, at least. At least. At least. Um, yeah, I I guess similar to everyone here, I grew up in one place, but have ties to a strong, strong cultural ties to another. Um, I'm Malia Ogawa. I am from Seattle originally. Um, I'm half Japanese because both of my parents are half Japanese. So living in Japan, the Japanese I meet are always confused. But um, I'm also Hawaiian um, and my parents are from Hawaii. So I was raised culturally way more Hawaiian than Japanese. I didn't really hit my Japanese roots until I started dating Callum. Um, so <laughs> we've been living here for almost two years. I've also lived in Paris and London like Angela. Um, in Illinois, which is close to Sean. Uh, so I've been, I've, this is like my fourth country I've lived in. So I like seeing all the different cultures as well. And I identify more as mixed race. I identify as a Japanese American when I'm doing my Japanese American history, but in general, kind of mixed race. And I'm Sarah, Sarah M. I grew up in Cambodia. 
I live in Cambodia up until I was 26. And then I uh, left Cambodia. It's a long journey, but finally I arrived in the United States 40 years ago. So yeah, I'm the oldest in this group. <laughs> I am an author of an author of the book. This is my book. It's how I survived the killing fields because um, it, you probably remember the movie The Killing Fields that was happening in Cambodia during my time in college. So I remember a lot, and I forgot a lot. But the book it just helped me to uh, recollect what was happening and what did I learn from it. So now I'm uh, an inspirational speaker and sharing my story, sharing my message, giving hope. So I live in Florida currently. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank you all guys for the great introductions. And just between the five of you, the you know, number of countries, places, and things you've all, where you've been, people you've met, your backgrounds. It's just, it's really neat to see how many different perspectives and experiences, you know, just the five of you have, you know, have done so far. So, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people, they may, they're from a place, they're around, they're surrounded by their culture, people they know, but they don't have a lot of exposure to a lot of different places around the world and a lot of different people around the world. And that's one of the big uh, purposes for this podcast and why I'm trying to raise awareness and just build more mutual affiliation and understanding from pe of people around the world. Cause at the end of the day, we're all pretty much the same. And if you, if you get what I mean. So, you know, to kind of be to best, you know, go into this, I prepared a list of questions that I think kind of give a good insight that everyone can kind of contribute to in their own way. So to begin the discussion phase of this episode, I want to start off with the first question. And, you know, it's kind of a general one, but I think it's important to kind of set a basis. And the first one I want to ask all of you is, how does your heritage impact your point of view on life and how you interact with others? I know it's a bit deep, but in just a general way, you know, maybe how would you approach that? Wow. Um, so this is Amy. And I, you know, being Vietnamese, I can say that I'm still learning about my personal history. Um, but it has opened my eyes a lot to how fragile life is, how resilient um, the human spirit can be. And, you know, it doesn't really matter your background or your ethnicity, whether you're rich or poor, born in the US or somewhere else. It's like we all have these these same struggles and fears, you know, we have the same basic wants and needs. And for me, um, I just love connecting with people to understand their roots. And I think that's how my heritage impacts my point of view and how I interact with others. Um, because I'm often misunderstood, you know, so I want to dig deep and understand others. Um, and, and somehow be a part of the same human progression, um, if that makes any sense. No, very well said, Amy. Um, I would say that it's an interesting way to, like, it's interesting that you ask how your heritage impacts your point of view, because for me personally, having grown up not really being told that, or having grown up in a, such an international sort of environment, heritage was really not as important of a factor in shaping someone's identity. So growing up in an, in an international school environment, um, 
we celebrated the, you know, where other people were from and the differences in cultures. But at the end of the day, we were always told that uh, we were all the same and that we, at the end of the day, you know, we, we all have to work together. We all, we're all part of the same world. And um, I grew up in Indonesia and the national motto for the country is unity and diversity. And that's, that's something that my school also very much uh, tried to espouse within like its educational program. Um, so I think in many ways, although it was a beautiful upbringing, it's also made the, the question of heritage and identity a little bit confusing because if you're four or five years old and you're constantly being like introduced to people from different places, um, it gives you a great understanding of others and sort of the commonalities between people. Uh, but when you sort of move out of that environment, you start to realize that that sort of bubble is not the way it is in other places. Um, and it, it's a shame because it should be. No, Angela, you bring up a great point there <clears throat> in that it doesn't really matter. It, you know, just it, every, the factors around where you're from or where you're, or how you're brought up can influence you. So, you know, one thing by itself is not going to maybe influential. It just, it's can be a host of things. And in your case, I think that's great. Everyone's taught that we're the same, you know, we're equal. And then we appreciate where everyone's from. I think I wish more people had that mentality or would be exposed to that mentality. Um, how has my heritage affected? So uh, I grew up in London um, and I was one of the few people with Asian heritage in my year, um, predominantly Caucasian um, year group. Um, my, my primary school was a bit more diverse, but essentially, yeah, I was, I always felt, uh, I, well, I was always treated as the Asian kid mm. in, in the group. Um, which at times growing up, I, I wanted to reject that label. You know, I, I didn't want to be treated as, as the Asian kid. I wanted to be considered English because I, I felt English. I was born in England. I had never lived in Japan. But then I think the older you get, you realize how sort of negative that, that way of thinking is and that you should embrace who you are. I'm half Japanese, but uh, I'm, I'm actually, it's, it's almost like I'm, I'm two things. I'm not less. I'm not two halves. I'm, I'm two whole aspects. Um, but I think growing up biracial, especially coming to Japan, I, I've realized that I'm not either English or, or Japanese. I, in, in England, I'm often treated as more Japanese. In Japan, I'm treated more as English. So I sort of have to straddle that divide of, of being both things. And I think that's impacted me in the way I interact with people. I, I tend to be a bit more fluid, um, sort of maybe change aspects of my personality to, to suit the conversation or maybe I don't know, make, I, I find it easier to make friendships that way, but having a bit of a fluid identity, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, you know? I mean, in, in one way you could say you learn how to code switch in a way, like from different places. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And I think to, a, to a, a smaller or greater level, we all do that in our societies, but like in your case, it's direct or more. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so growing up, 
Growing up, I grew up in like a diverse community. There were a lot of different Asian people, um, all types, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipino, etc. And a lot of my friends were either one of my best friends is half Ecuadorian, but she looks really white. Um, I tan better than her. And um, another, I have other friends who are like Indian. There are lots of Indians, lots of Jewish people. Um, and then I went to this Catholic all girls school in Seattle and there were a lot of black girls. There were a lot of Asian girls. There were white girls. And people always saw me as like the Hawaiian cause that's how my family really identifies. Like if you ever go to our house, Angela has been there. You see like pineapples everywhere, like uh, ukuleles. My my brother and my dad always wear Aloha shirts. Um, we give out lays. Yeah, we give out lays at graduation. I have like a pineapple tribal tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> but it was when I went to Illinois, I became the Asian girl, even though I'm only half. And back when I was like when I was in high school. Um, I'd bring up that I was Japanese and I always got, you're Japanese? I thought you were Hawaiian. And I was like, you can be both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also white. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Hawaiian aspect kind of disappeared when I went to Illinois because there weren't that many Asian people there. And one thing I've noticed is like, even though I don't look as Japanese as maybe like Callum does, white people would see me and make me like the token Asian person if I was in a place where there weren't a lot of Asian people. And Asian people would see me and think that I was just like Western. And then when I lived in London and Paris, they all kind of just saw me as an American, except for the white guys I dated <laughs> who were like, oh, I have yellow fever. Yeah, so I don't date white men anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, well. it's, been, <laughs> it's, and then here in Japan, like this is like, I'm a foreigner and I'm an American, but they're very interested to find out that I'm Japanese and I've noticed that for me, at least, my students and other people seem to accept me more once they find out I'm Japanese. So I don't get treated like the white people. I don't get treated like the black people. I don't get treated like the Japanese people. I don't get treated like the Southeast Asian people. I get like some weird little thing where I kind of fly under the radar and people know that I'm like a foreign, but doesn't really like other me as much. Then again, I can't speak Japanese like Callum can. So maybe they're othering me more in their language without me knowing. <laughs> but they always find it like really interesting that I'm Japanese. Well, you bring up another good point in how that perceptions in different places can, how they look at you. And, you know, living in Illinois myself, I can definitely attest to that because, you know, I, I, did, you know, I had an Asian girlfriend a while back and whenever and from China. And when she came here, she would get so much attention and it'd be a little like, what guys settle down, settle down. <laughs> so yeah, it definitely, you know, because it just predominantly where I'm from, it's mostly white Caucasian. So yeah, it was a lot of ignorance too. They would say like, Oh, you know, you like, you're, you're, you're Asian. What Chinese food should I order? You know, stuff like that. Like <laughs> all Asians are the same. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, from from living in China for four years myself, you know, I got a lot of that too. And I'd, I'd talk to people and say, "Oh, you live in China?" I'm like, "No, they don't do that. Oh, no, this food doesn't exist there." You know, kind of brushing aside a lot of those things. But it's just, you know, it's at the end of the day, I don't get I don't get angry about it. I'm just saying, well, they haven't been there. They don't know anyone from there, so you know, I'm not gonna hold it against them right, for any reason. <laughs> well, I have a opportunity to live in my country longer than a lot of you, so. 
my experience slightly different and pretty much settled into the culture. So um, let's see, I live in the countryside and with my family until I was 21 when I moved away to attend college and then and then the uh, Cameroon communists came in. They basically shut down the country. But before that, I'm pretty much settled in the Cambodian tradition and the way of living. You know, we value family units. So family is very important. And uh, we, we try to do everything possible to not to have any friction among our family. And we um, respect the older people and uh, support each other. And uh, what I remember is that the people are polite, kind, and uh, compassionate to one another. And since uh, the communists took over, I realized that the Cambodian people are still have a very strong tenacity and are resilient. A, a lot of people rebounds, you know, pretty well. But the, as the whole, the country uh, went through a nightmare for so long and it, everything is, was destroyed, it's pretty hard to, build, to rebuild, but the people themselves are pretty resilient. But, but now that I'm, I am here in the United States, yeah, I have a hard time assimilating <laughs> to, to the community, but I did not, I, I did not uh, regret about being here. I did not hold the community against me. I have a lot of good things. I have wonderful church group that support me when I first came. So I'm so grateful that they, they express their love, their support. So I have all kinds, I'm just choose to, to pick the positive side of things. So um, that's, that's how I can, can live happy and healthy. And now to remind of the, the horrible situation back in my country. No, no, very well said, Sarah. And I think that speaks to a very important thing is that I think we all should try to focus on the positives. You know, you know, we can't always ignore the negatives and you never should. You you need to deal with them. But at the same time, I think the more positive your mindset is and the more positive you are in your outlook and how you perceive things, the better your life's going to be. And it's going to be better for society in general, because let's face it, no one wants to be around a negative person in any regard or any aspect. So, no, very well said, and I really, pre- I really like all the different insights. And that leads on to our, our the next question I have is, you know, how closely do you follow your traditions, or do you deviate or modify them uh, to fit your current situation, personality, and or lifestyle? I know it's a little concentrated, but I think it's kind of interesting to see maybe what degrees we all have here in that. Well, as I mentioned, I'm still trying to understand what it means to be Vietnamese. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I came here to the United States when I was five years old. I was an itty bitty. Um, So it wasn't until when my mom passed that I really started to dig deep and unearth um, my heritage. Right. So my mom, she used to have a, a veneration table to honor her parents and she would burn incense. On, their, on special occasions, she would have their photos um, hanging on the wall and 
she would place food, you know, she would slave all day cooking food and put it uh, as an offering and do pray prayers and that kind of stuff. And so that's one tradition that I have continued to do. Um, and, and that is ancestor worship, even though I'm not Buddhist, um, I'm actually Catholic, although a very poor one. Um, I still honor, I, I honor my mom by doing that, you know, and I love to cook now. And if you follow me on Facebook or anywhere else, you'll see I do a lot of postings of food because that's one way I can honor my mom. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, even though I don't have a clue sometimes as to what the traditions are, and I just kind of make things up to fit my personality. Um, and I think the most important thing is it doesn't have to be proper etiquette necessarily, but it's your attempt and you're trying, you know, I'm a 1.5 generation Vietnamese refugee and things are going to get diluted eventually. I mean, my son, you know, he, he burns the incense and you're supposed to put it like all the way to your forehead and you do a deep bow. You know, he just does this little wand thing, like he's doing sparklers and <laughs> he's done, um, but he still does it. And so, yeah. Um, Anyways, that's my answer. <laughs> um, I would I would say that for me, um, tradition in the Philippines is very closely related to religion. Uh, so a lot of a lot of the um, sort of the traditions that I follow or that was raised with have to do with Catholicism um, and about family values in general. I think that's a I can say that in general in Asia, family is very important. Um, so those were the sorts of traditions that I grew up with, sort of respecting your elders and um, appreciating uh, what your family means and what they can do for you. And I was very fortunate that uh, my parents were very open minded. So when I was being raised, uh, being overseas and in an international school, my parents were always very clear about the fact that we were foreigners in another country and we should be um, respectful towards the country that we're in. So even if you know, at home, we spoke English and we're Filipino. My parents insisted that I learn the local language and that when I interact with people in Indonesia, that you um, pay the appropriate respects to that sort of tradition. So I would say that in general, my traditions are kind of influenced by many different cultures. But when it comes down to what I do with my family, it's usually based around religion, which isn't, you know, specific to us to a country it's specific to that religion and it being catholic it's more western um and potentially more strict in some aspects but as i mentioned my parents were very open-minded so they were very happy for my brother and i have an older brother to sort of mold these traditions to fit our own personalities and our own preferences so they never forced anything on us and um just encourage us to just be respectful. I would say that when it comes to the traditions, it was just the traditions of religion without necessarily um, imposing that religion upon us. So just things like respect your family, be respectful towards others and try, try to be a good person. No, that's, I think that that's great. And I think it's good that you had parents that were open-minded and encouraged you to, you know, to learn and to kind of find your own equilibrium in a way. uh traditions i this is a bit of a hard one for me because i think a lot of the traditions that i have have become unconscious um hmm. i i don't really think about them so some of the ones that come to mind are you know classic common in many asian cultures where no shoes in the house i just grew up that way i didn't 
I didn't even know that other people didn't do that until I visited other homes. Um, when leaving the house, for example, I would always say "itdikimas," and my mom would say "itarashai," which is like a, a it's like a Japanese thing where you kind of say farewell, like not farewell, but every time you leave the house, you you say that, and the person who's still there, and then when you come back, you say "tadaima," which means like. I'm here now, and the person would say, Okai nasai, and say, Welcome home. And I don't think that's, I don't think it's common really to have like a set phrase that you say every time you leave and every time you come back. These are all things that, small little things that you are just taught from a young age and don't think about, don't really examine. Uh, another thing would be chopsticks. You never, when, uh, using chopsticks you never touch your chopsticks to another person's chopsticks because that's reserved for uh, cremation when you're when a family member or a loved one dies you cremate them and you pass the bones from the cremation to each other using chopsticks so to touch chopsticks to chopsticks in everyday life as if I was like pass, passing a, a bit of beef or something to another person that's a definite no-no um but again, you don't you don't stop and think. You don't really consider the. Re you're just told as a child, no, you don't do that, and uh, you're like, okay, fair enough, and then continue with your life. So it, it was hard. It's hard for me to sort of extract tradition from what I consider just normal life to be. If that makes sense. No, I think I think you, that. A good thing that could be brought up is that I've noticed that, yeah, a lot of times what we're taught as kids, you know, what, what we do, it just becomes so normal. We don't even think about it. But like, for example, when my Chinese friend visited, visited me, he would ask, why do you guys do this? Why do you guys do that? And that's when you're like, oh, yeah, why do we do that? It usually takes someone from a, another place to, to, who is very inquisitive. Oh, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Like, oh, why, did, why does the fork go here? Why does the knife go here? And yeah. that's when like me and my family was like, oh. Yeah, why do we, <laughs> you could kind of re-examine things to a bit? So that's a, but yeah, but a lot of people, you know, they may not encounter that, but I, I find that really interesting. Or likewise, if you're visiting someone else from a different culture, you can do the same thing and then may think, okay, yeah, we do this, but oh yeah. <laughs> so that is, that is kind of a neat thing, but I completely agree. We, there's so many things we, we do that are just like literally subconscious. Oh, I guess. Well, there's tradition. It's, there's a lot of tradition within it. Uh, so I do sports. I do a well martial art called kendo, which is oh kendo, yes, yeah, means way of the sword. Um, it's a Japanese. I think it was, a, it was a way. My mother did it when she was in high school, but she had to give it up. So I think it was my parents wanting me to reconnect with sort of like a very traditional aspect of Japanese culture and I have to say they've <clears throat> I I went through waves of loving it and hating it just because I don't know if other people have experienced this but <clears throat> when you do a when you do an activity and I can't really speak for everyone but a lot of the Asian people that I know is if if uh, if you're doing an activity your parents won't let you quit it they won't let they won't they're like until you're about 18, your, your decision-making with regards to activities is, is not your own. It, your parents get to dictate what you do, 
when you're 18 and maybe you know they're less worried about you you've got into university you've got your high level piano or or high level sporting activity under your belt then they sort of relax but before that point you're kind of stuck with it I love it now and I'm glad that I think it's hard because as a child it can be very with so much going on it can be very easy just to want to quit for the sake of quitting but unless you unless you I think it's only worth quitting when you find something that you love more rather than just quitting and just doing nothing so I am grateful that they did push me but at the time it was sometimes a struggle Let's say everything is clear in retrospect. And it's like, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, why do I have to do all this? Why do my parents make me do this? But later in life, like, oh, wow, learning these skills can be useful. But at the time, it's hard to see, to visualize that because you don't have anything to, to really compare to at that point in your life. Or at least a lot of kids don't. Yeah. Um, so both of my parents are half Japanese. And my dad's, my dad's grandma immigrated from Japan to Hawaii. And she wanted to have American kids. So they were like very like Hawaiian Japanese. My mom's mom was in the camps and she married the white man. So my mom grew up in Hawaii too, but she didn't learn Japanese. Her mom wanted her kids to be Americans because like being in prisons can do that to you. Um, she was, she, what, one thing that was interesting though is that my grandma was one of her she had a large group of siblings. She was one of the few ones to marry outside of the Japanese race. So when we visit um, the rest of the siblings in California, it's like this big Japanese American community. But because my grandma married a white man and then they were raised in Hawaii, both of my parents grew up really culturally Hawaiian. So I didn't grow up doing a lot of Japanese things. Um, and, you know, Hawaii has such a mix of like Asian cultures already. So we grew up eating like rice every night. Um, uh, Cause like everyone in Hawaii has like a rice cooker, just like in Japan, just like probably in other parts of Asia. Uh, we use chopsticks. Um, whenever we have parties, we have like luau's, we get Hawaiian food for it. Like I'm having a birthday party on Sunday and I'm making guava cupcakes. <laughs> um, we have guava juice in our fridge. So like I carry <laughs> some of that with me, but it's more like Hawaiian. It's interesting because I think that my mom can speak a little Japanese and growing up in Hawaii and being Japanese, like they did know stuff about their culture, but, um, I noticed that the Japanese culture came out more with my mom when I started dating Callum <laughs> again. <laughs> um, it probably helped like renew all of our interest in our Japanese culture because Callum, I feel is more culturally Japanese than me. And being a British Japanese, he doesn't have the same legacy that Japanese Americans do mm -hmm. of like being imprisoned during the war. Um, and he's Nisei, I'm Yonsei. So he's second generation and I'm fourth generation. So there's not like a whole lot of specific Japanese traditions I can think of, but kind of more like the, the mix of all of the Asian races that comes together in Hawaii. So I feel like I grew up more like Hawaiian, Asian kind of with the rice, the chopsticks, and then specifically Hawaiian with our Aloha shirts. And we would get Hawaiian food and we have parties. We have pineapples everywhere. 
My dad plays the uke and he does stand up paddle boarding. And um, I used to outrigger canoe with him when I was younger. Because that's one thing my dad loves is paddling. The whole family, uh, you and your siblings will have Hawaiian names. Oh, yeah. Me and my siblings all have Hawaiian names. Um, Malia's Hawaiian. My brother's name is Keone. My sister's name is Nalani. Our dog's name is Shaka. <laughs> um so so like being hawaiian has always been the big thing really so and, in one way you could say that in you know the environment there is kind of you create like a more of a hybridized you know culture in a way because of all the different inputs and how they've all kind of coalesced and they're forming something more more mixed and new but they're still retained yeah, yeah. retained mm-hmm. you know in essence what they are but they're kind of more of a fusion going on Yeah. And then like, um, I guess our white, like European side still comes out too, because me and my dad are the only ones that look more, I don't know how to say this, more like (laughs) non-white. My mom's half Japanese, but she and her siblings, you can't, you can't tell unless you know. Mm. Um, A lot of people think they're white. My brother, he was born blonde. He has blue eyes. He's a brunette now, but he looks so white. Mm. He gets, um, I like to say that he gets um, white male privilege while also the added privilege of being a minority (laughs) because he's so white passing. Mm. Um, And then my sister, I think people think she looks Hispanic. And a bit of everything in the family, you could say. Yeah, and then I've met like in Illinois when I lived there, I've met some Mexican people and they thought I was Mexican. Mm. So they would speak Spanish to me and I was like, I don't know Spanish. And I met one of my sorority sisters was Mexican and I met her, I thought she was half Japanese. So no, overall, no, overall very interesting. And just you know, it's amazing what different places how people may approach you based on preconceived notions or oh, this person looks like me, and then you're like, oh. It's not, as I say, never assume anything from my experiences. Yeah, so I'm just basically like super mixed, which is why I asked Callum to be on here to represent Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Melia. And then Sarah, what about you? Well, for me, when I came to United States, I first uh, stayed in the Cambodian community. So pretty much just eat Asian food and doing things with the Cambodian community. And then after I got married, I moved away. My husband lived away from the, uh, live in another state. And he's pretty much in the non-Asian community. So that's when I learned to adapt. <laughs> I adapt, I adapt pretty well. But live in the, the Cambodian uh, household, it doesn't make much difference. Only outside that is a little bit different. But inside the house, we just eat the same food. We just speak the same language and all that. It's not too much a big deal. But as the time go on right now, we pretty much assimilate into the, the um, American culture. I would say I don't do much of the traditional way anymore so everything is more like um, american way the only thing that asian way is the food <laughs> we still eat rice we still eat the asian food we still eat curry and so um and we still uh, we still speak the language if we want to 
but we don't. We we speak English in home at the home. So, mm. so I would say like eighty percent have been diverted away from the tradition, from the heritage. Plus, I changed my uh, my faith. My husband is a Christian, so um, I became a Christian. So that's totally different. That's changed a lot because when you change the faith. All the tradition that we used to do, it's related to the the religion. So once you change the faith, you change everything. So that's how I, you know, I transition into the new um, new lifestyle. Very well put, and I think there's definitely a trend here with the role of faith in in where, where you are in society and how. That very well said. And also that leads into the next question I want to ask, and that is, of course, on food. And what are some of the, like your favorite exotic foods or what are some foods that you enjoy that maybe others around you that are, that are you know, like, well, like, what is that? Or they think is strange or different. Yeah. Okay, now you're talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love food and I love to explore, but I would say that the, the two most exotic foods that I enjoy that probably people, you know, um, cringe at are balut and, um, right. Fertilized duck eggs that have been incubated for like two weeks. Um, and durian, um, that tastes creamy and, um, sweet, like custard, like if you can get past the smell, which is funny because like Anthony Bourdain loved durian, right? And then on the flip side, you have, um, was it Andrew Zimmern, who is the bizarre foods guy and he'll eat anything that's totally bizarre and weird, but he, he hates durian. I don't understand that. Um, but anyways, those are my two things that I absolutely love and people just don't enjoy that as much as I do. <laughs> well, Amy, as soon as you said durian, that that brings up a very hilarious memory. And I remember the first time I introduced durian to my family at a Chinese restaurant in St. Louis and I got them some durian cakes. Uh, they about died. I thought it was good, but they about died. And they were like, what the heck did you give us? Like this, And I'm like, it's durian, it's good. And they, and they, they just, they, the, 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 their reaction I still remember it like millisecond by millisecond watching their faces go from what is this to like, Oh my God, what is this? <laughs> oh yeah. It's like eating a huge plant, but it's so good. <laughs> I mean, I find it's good. It's just that after I eat so much, I'm like, okay, I'm done. It's, it, it's quite strong. So it's good, but up to a certain point, then it starts to get overpowering, but that's at least me. <laughs> yep. Amy, um, if ever you get the chance to visit Singapore, I'll let you know about where they have these durian stalls, like on the side of the road. So it's essentially like instead of a fruit stall, it's a durian stall and they actually have like tables and they give oh, you wow. they give you like plastic gloves and they're usually open 24 hours. So you can like go there any time of the day, pick um, a durian that you like, they hack it in half and then you just sit at a table with like a group of friends and like you like you eat them with your hands like on the side of the street. I, I really miss those days. I don't know when we're going to be able to do that again, but you, you mentioned durian, like Singapore. Yeah, I love great. it. Love yeah. it. So um, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of durian, uh, even if I grew up in Indonesia. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan. Uh, but I would say probably like the two most exotic foods, which are not at all exotic in the Philippines, are like normal, um, would be one of them would be sisig, which is like fried pork cheek. Um, that they fry, like they fry with like uh, some vegetables and like coconut milk. And I think it's 
I think it's coconut milk. It's delicious. I'm not a big fan of pork, but like it's delicious. And then another thing that I really like is something called dinuguan, which is in, um, I don't know how to translate it directly into English, but it just means like the blooded or like bloody something. And it's made with like pork innards and the sauce is made with like vinegar and pork's blood, which when you hear it, like even when, when I was a kid, I was like, would never, not going to touch it. Sounds too crazy. And then my parents were like, just try it, just try it once. And then after trying it that one time, um, whenever it's on the table, I'll take some. Yeah. Whenever I tell people like some things I've tried as well overseas, and as soon as I start mentioning the word blood, they all about start losing it. Most exotic foods. I unlike I'm Asian, but unlike most Asian families, my my parents didn't insist on eating rice every night. So I'm more accustomed to not eating rice, actually. Well, Angela, you've given me two things to look forward to trying if I ever visit the Philippines. Cal loves food, so yeah, this I might mean, take a while. Japan has a lot of <laughs> dishes that I think people would be a bit apprehensive. Well, maybe you could pick, pick a couple of the most extreme cases, maybe. We ate some cod sperm on Christmas. Uh, okay. Uh, that was so there's, um, there's a, yeah, there's a dish called shirako, which is, I'm not sure what the fish is, but it's not, it's not. It's cod, not, cod sperm. It's more the sack, Literally I think. Sperm. It's more the, the sperm sack. <laughs> but it uh, it's delicious, it's light, it's creamy, but... Um, it's got a consistency similar to creamy. It was, it like brushes yeah, she, me out. No, so so she's she's acting up now, but before she knew what it was, she no. thought it was it was very good. No, I didn't. I never said that. Okay, so I took Callum for this like really expensive meal on Christmas because his birthday is December tenth, and I drank a lot of wine because I knew that was going to be served things I didn't want to eat, <laughs> so that I would be drunk when I would eat it. And that was how I got it down. Callum was like, it's fish. And I was like, I know this isn't fish, but I'm just going to eat it because I have a lot of allergies and they all prepared all of my meal really special for me because of all my allergies. And they were watching me and I was like, damn it, I have to eat this. (laughs) I have to eat it all. So I drank a lot of wine Mm. and that, but I did not enjoy it. I was like, okay, Mm. it's fine. I think it's uh, it's kind of an Asian thing to use all the parts of the animal or of fish, which I think can be a bit misunderstood in other cultures, but oh, I mean, for sure, in yes, the UK, for sure. Black pudding, which is similar to what Angela was mentioning, is it's a blood, it's like a blood sausage, and people eat that quite happily with their fried breakfasts on a Sunday morning, but will find stuff like I don't know. I think for a lot of people, it's just, it's not even the dish itself. It's just, it's just the, the visualization and thinking about it that gets you. Well, that's the mistake. See, you've got to just shut that out and just enjoy the, the meal. You also like, um, natto. Unagi. Oh, natto. Um, natto is fermented soybeans. Uh, sorry, I'm taking too much time on this, but yeah, nat- natto is uh, fermented soybeans. It has a peculiar smell that for a lot of people just turns them off completely um is that like the stinky tofu as they say uh it's they're they're brown brown beans very sticky so you normally have you add a bit of uh sauce and mustard to loosen it up and then you typically have it on hot rice some people have it on toast okay 
that's because when you said that, I immediately thought of when I was in China, they had what's called a chou dofu, which means like stinky tofu, and literally, like, the smell will about kill you. I mean, it tasted pretty well, but the, the smell, literally, you literally have to, like, pinch your nose when you eat it, otherwise it'll, like, knock you out. And, right, right. And even some, even some of the Chinese can't stand it, so you know it's something the lo- some of the locals can take it versus others can't. <laughs> yeah, nat- natto is also divisive here. A lot of Japanese people don't like it, don't, don't enjoy the smell, so. Gotcha. And Sarah, last what about what about you? The the food that I like the most is not really exotic, but it's it exotic compared to the people that eat mild food. Um, curry, the spicier is the better for me. <laughs> ah, so we have a spice fan here. Yeah, hot and spicy. So that's mm. my favorite food. All right. No, very cool. And, you know, more food to try and, you know. I, I think, you know, if, whenever you travel or, you know, you're trying something new or going somewhere different, I think part of that is trying the new foods, kind of put your, put your standards aside as, of course, safety is first and foremost, but try to try new foods because I've traveled with people and like, I can't try this, I can't try that. And I'm like, then why are you even here? <laughs> yeah, if, if I bring my friend to Asian restaurant and some exotic restaurant, they serve fish from head to tail, right? So they just flip out. They say, oh, yep. they, cannot, they cannot stand seeing the head and the tail and the whole fish on the plate. But we get used to it. That's, that's natural. <laughs> and people fight over the eyes, the fish eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm so used to that now. I mean, I really enjoy it. But if I ever took my family to a place like that, they'd, they'd probably flip out <laughs> completely. Yes. Oh, me out. I'm a bit of a picky either. <laughs> Italian food's my favorite. <laughs> gotcha. And that leads me to the next point I want to bring up is, you know, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are some, what are some common customs in your daily life? I mean, you kind of going, going off quite our earlier question, but you know, for yourself, what are maybe a couple, a couple of very common customs you follow on a daily basis that's kind of more linked to your ancestry, culture, heritage, etc.? Well, Callum um, actually touched on this, and that is taking your shoes off when you enter mm. Asian households, right? I am a stickler for that. Um, and I think people need to understand the reason why we are sticklers for that. Um, historically, traditionally, culturally, whatever, we, the Asian um, household is all about doing everything on the floor. We eat on the floor, we prepare our food on the floor, we sleep on the floor, we play games, we sew, we do everything on the floor. And so when you walk in, it's a, it's respectful to take off your shoes because you don't want to track in the dirt and the outside world into a peaceful haven, right? Um, And so, you know, living in the States and I see my American counterparts and Preston, my son's friends coming in, it's like they know now the first thing they need to do is either leave their shoes at the door or outside. Um, So that's my number one thing that I'm that I love to 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 stick with. But the other thing is just is money for weddings, funerals, birthdays, holidays, whatever it is. Um, That's one custom that I keep um, alive because things are expensive, you know, and so I'd rather get money to help pay for that versus another KitchenAid or a plate. So, <laughs> yep, yep. Sean just showed up some money envelopes. That's exactly what I want. 
Um, it's interesting that uh, like one of the biggest things people associate with Asian tradition and culture is the, the need to take your shoes off before you enter the house. Because I, I, I practice that now, but growing up, my parents were really not strict about it. So it was only once I actually moved and moved to Singapore um, to mm. work and spending more time with like, it was the first time in my life, I would say that the, like most of my friends were of an Asian background. Growing up, most of my friends were always from Western backgrounds. So when I moved to Singapore, it was the first time I became friends with um, Asians who grew up in Asia. And they, they were shocked at my at my lack of taking off of shoes whenever I would visit their houses because it was not something that I grew up with. Um, so I find that interesting, but I guess in terms of other Filipino traditions that I practice on a day-to-day -day basis, probably just has to do with respecting elders. So I would say similar to um, what you would have in other Asian cultures, we, we, we have specific words that we use to address people who are older than us. So it, you know, different depending on whether they're, um, closer in age, but still older, or if they're like your parents' friends, for example. Um, and that changes depending on whether I'm interacting with Filipinos or Indonesians. Um, and yeah, even in Singapore with some certain like terms that you use as a form of respect to Chinese elders. Um, and yeah, that's probably it, I would say. Everything else, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of related to faith. So it it's not specific to Filipino culture. Yeah, I think I mentioned sort of the daily customs that I implement in the last question. Struggling to think any more. Can you? Do you... I have answers, yes. Yeah, okay. Do you, should we go straight to that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, this is what I've picked up in Japan because I didn't do this growing up either. Same with the shoe thing with Angela. My family didn't really do that much. I like how in Japan there's, you enter and there's this, it's very obvious, this is where your shoes go. So then, and then you keep going, yeah. Um, so the stuff I've picked up in Japan is the, mm, 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 mm. Callum started making all the noises that the Japanese people make whenever they exert any effort. Please make some noises. It's just, but, things, uh, yeah, it's like, yosho. Um, <laughs> He goes to pick something up and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, I don't, I've, I don't know. I just... And then the, the bowing, the always, the always bowing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So this is like a little funny story because I can't really speak Japanese, but I interact with Japanese work culture way more than Callum does. And uh, when I leave the kindergartens I work at, I go to the office and I go, and then one of the last kindergartens I was at, they giggled at me. Callum said it's because I can't speak Japanese, but I did something that only Japanese people do. Yeah. So there's like the polite things like that. Yeah. So when leaving the office, you typically say, which means like, well done for your hard work. Mm. Um, and that's something that exists in pretty much all I, I i can't say all but most japanese companies mm -hmm. you, will, you will do that yeah you have to but then also we belong to a gym here and after the end of our classes in the locker rooms the people will say to us yeah so i know this it's not just like leaving uh work it's like well, leaving it, the gym yeah it's like when you've done some work in some form i guess 
So you could say like the customs and ceremony are very, very important. Like anytime you do something, a task or whether it's more work or personal, there's always like a, you have to like acknowledge it or there's. Yeah. Like if I was to hand this to Callum, I can't be like this. I have to go like this. Uh, yeah. It's more for business cards. But no, when, when I'm at work, whenever people hand me something, they hand it to me with two uh, hands. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. There's a lot of aspects which are, well, this is the way it's, always been done so we're not going to change it now um continuation like you know don't question this is how things are done and you know and that's one thing i've noticed from a few of my friends who also have worked in japan that you know they really emphasize the ceremony the order and kind of in a way hierarchy within a company how people are supposed to act and how you you know interact with people at different levels of the company so on and so forth so that's very interesting because here in the u.s it's there is that but it's much more watered down i would say mm. Less rigid. Yeah. Yeah. And then Sarah, what about you? Well, um, the, the thing that uh, I'm still practicing is when I'm among the Cambodian people, I still uh, salute with, with like this, my two mm. hands together and, uh, instead of shaking hands. So it's, it's no, no handshake in Cambodian culture. It's only like this. So uh, we, we still do that among our own people, but with the American, we, we don't do that. We, we do handshake. Mm. And, and we still continue to respect the older, the older people. And we still cook our own meal, at, our own food at home. <laughs> we, we More universe, universal trends here. Yeah, we go to the Asian store, Asian market, and buy all the ingredient and vegetable and everything, and we make our own meal. So we don't eat out that much. So we are very health conscious to um, keep our health healthy. Well, that's never a, never a bad thing. <laughs> I definitely will say I definitely thinned thinned down a bit when I was in China. I never was overweight by any means, but I definitely thinned down a bit because <laughs> of the diet. But yeah, and that leads into another good point, and that is, you know, what are the holidays you celebrate? I know there are some univer universal ones, but I mean, for each of your backgrounds, what are some like maybe maybe like the most important holidays in a kind of a nutshell? I think in the Vietnamese culture, everybody knows that the Lunar New Year and the Mid-Autumn Festival are pretty huge festivals and things that we celebrate. So I'm going to talk a little bit about funerals. Um, funerals are actually pretty big deals in the Vietnamese culture. Uh, I would imagine maybe in other cultures too. But, you know, it's our way to pay respect to the deceased. It's also um, a way for us to prepare them for the afterlife because we believe there is an afterlife. And um, usually you'll see that where in the American culture, you know, people wear black to funerals. In the, in the Vietnamese culture, we wear white. And the closer you are to um, the deceased, um, you are usually dressed from head to toe in a headband and a robe in white. And if you're an extended family member, then you just wear the white headband. Um, but there's always a lot of food. There's a lot, usually it's, it's whatever the deceased loves to eat is what is prepared. Um, there's a lot of music. Um, and if you're Buddhist, we usually have monk, uh, a monk that comes and does the chanting and the prayers. And so uh, it's a big, big deal. And we also celebrate this for at least, I think, 49 days. 
um, where you're always preparing food for to celebrate and, and for the, the deceased to honor their life, right? But then after a hundred days, um, you have another celebration and it's to mark the ending of the morning. So for me, when my mom passed away, I had to learn all of this stuff. Um, and I was cooking a storm, <laughs> cooking up a storm. Um, so yeah, that's for me, the funeral is, is a big thing to celebrate. It's someone's life, right? Um, I would say in the Philippines, uh, they call it a Christmas just because it's, um, and Christmas is done there. It's, it's a huge affair. Uh, and it's really probably the one time a year that kind of everyone gets off. So it's an opportunity for everyone in the family to really come together. Uh, and that's always how I viewed Christmas as like a very crowded, loud, um, fun affair with my, not just my family, but with my extended family as well. And it's, there's a lot of effort made into, you know, bringing everyone together. Uh, but I also grew up in Indonesia. So during um, like Ramadan and Eid al-Fitri, those are holidays as well that, although I didn't directly celebrate them, was affected by it. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, it happens at different times of the year, but the, the, you know, the, the stories are the same. There's, you know, it's about profits and it's about, you know, saving, um, you know, your faith and valuing family. So, uh, it's growing up the way I did was cool because, um, my school had like over 65 nationalities, so, so many different religions represented. So with all of those different religions represented, we were made aware of all of the different holidays from each religion and for each country. And we get days off. So there would be periods of like three months where we would not have a full week of school just because there was a holiday. <laughs> um, so it was... Yeah, kids here would love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. It was, it was really great. Um, my parents were like, why are you never in school? Um, but... Yeah, I would say it's Christmas is the big one in the Philippines and um, we celebrate probably like we get a day off for like every saint, mm. which is a lot of saints. <laughs> so there's hella holidays like um, my work calendar when I was working full time last year. There's so many random holidays throughout the entire year in Japan, in Japan, in Japan. Um, we personally don't celebrate any of them. Maybe Callum does without me. Um, I don't know. But like, I think New Year's is the big one here. New Year's and Obon. New Year's, Obon, and well, a lot of them tend to coincide with, well, so you have Golden Week, you have Obon, and you have New Year's. I think it's like, they're widely celebrated because no taking, one's allowed to take ho taking holiday, um, taking paid holiday, in it's Japanese work culture is it's allowed but it's, it's legally allowed but it's you'll get punished if you take it off you won't get punished yes if you, take, you will you won't get punished yes if you, you will take it off. he didn't work at a Japanese company yes but you won't get punished it's just well you won't get punished by your company but you might be treated but maybe you could say like a little intimidated or there's a little there's a lot of pressure like to keep working like it's well it's yeah. one of those indirect things it, it ties into sort of the Japanese concept of uh, putting the community before the individual. So when you're taking paid holiday, you're effectively putting more work on the shoulders of your colleagues. And it's seen as more a more selfish thing to do. Whereas in the, in the UK, it's more like, no, we work hard. We're entitled to our time off. No one's going to think if, if, 
if you know the guy across from me wants to take his holiday in summer you know like that's his right absolutely he should do that you know he'll he'll do the same for me like i'll take on his work but then when it's my turn to go on holiday he, he'll take on more work and that's it's how okay. it should be and that's how it should be but I'm, in Japan, I'm i have a lot of views about japanese work culture yes, that are okay. not positive yeah but, <laughs> but in any case the main the main celebrations for us are the christian Easter, we celebrate Easter christmas and, and christmas we like halloween yeah. um i love thanksgiving but calum's not american and i usually have to work um we didn't do anything for easter no no like, but like growing chocolate. up growing up i did yeah my family's catholic so we did the catholic stuff yeah. and the american holidays um japan it's like golden week obon which is in august new year's so those are the three times a year where people travel so they're the most expensive times to travel um so golden week is like the school year is april to march so golden week for some reason is end of april beginning of may so like they start school for like maybe three weeks and then they have like a week off um and that's like the most expensive time to travel in japan mm-hmm. and then oban is in august so that's kind of like summer holidays for the kids but it's like one week yeah, yeah it's, it's not it's that long it's a lantern festival yeah it's a festival, festival for like the dead mm. and um new year's everyone goes to like the shrine yeah. on new year's day so new year's eve isn't really like a big thing yeah. like it is in the west and kids you would as a kid as a child uh, i don't think malia had this but on new year's you get otoshidama which is where you get uh money from your grandparents in in an envelope and it's typically quite a lot I yeah. didn't get any money. Yeah, but I know I, I'm like, dang, I must, I must have been missing out because we got stuff. But yeah, my, my Chinese friends and like, yeah, like, oh, Hongbao red packets or you know, wherever it is. That's <laughs> like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got a red packet once from Chinese neighbors. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, I never got red packets either. Which I don't know. I just my part. My dad's side of the family is like part is ethnically Chinese. Like I've got Chinese roots. Um, but I feel like with my family, they just kind of pick and chose like which parts of like heritage and tradition that they themselves liked. And then just only did that with my brother and I, because I, I even like, you know, growing up, I didn't find out about Santa. I didn't know that he existed. Like I didn't know who this like big guy was until I was about five, because one of my mom's friends asked me if I'd written a letter to Santa. And I was like, who's Santa? Um, and then, I feel, and then I asked my parents about it. And then I feel like they were really disappointed that I found out because I think they were like purposefully like trying to hide it from me so that they wouldn't have to buy me another present. <laughs> but um, yeah, just a little tidbit. And, and then Sarah, what, what, would you say, what would you say for, for you? Well, in Cambodia, we celebrate, the biggest celebration is the new year, the lunar new year. It's, uh, it's slightly different from Chinese and Vietnamese. We celebrate in April, April, the, somewhere around the middle of April. So Cambodian, uh, Thai and uh, Lao, we all celebrate the same time of the year. That's our New Year celebration. And uh, we, I, re- I remember we celebrate the uh, remember like memorial like memorial type of uh, time to remember the the deceased uh, ancestor and so on but now that i'm here i don't do the memorial type of um, holiday anymore 
I don't do the New Year, the Lunar New Year anymore because I'm more in adapt into a new faith. So I'm more like Christmas, New Year, uh, Easter, and you know, more like a religious holiday. So that's what I'm doing currently doing for the last thirty years. Oh, very nice. All very good points, and I really appreciate the in-depth discussion on all these topics here. This will conclude part one of this episode. As part two, we will go into other topics. But I just want to thank everyone for joining this episode, and I look forward to meeting you all again on part two as we continue to delve into these topics and further discuss how cultural elements, our heritage, uh, past experiences, current experiences, so on and so forth, how they all shape us and define who we are as people and in the societies that we engage with. So everyone, I hope you've really enjoyed this episode. Please let us know what you think by emailing us at internationalimmersionpodcast at gmail.com or check out our social media on Facebook, International Immersion, and Instagram of the same name. And we will see you on the next one. Thank you and... Tune in for part two coming soon.